Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. Season 7 of Jury Duty focuses on two sexual assault trials, the trials of Harvey Weinstein and Danny Masterson, that are currently taking place at the same time on the same floor of the Clara Shortridge Foltz Criminal Courts Building in downtown Los Angeles. As these trials wind down, we are bifurcating our coverage of them. On today's episode, we present the second part of Jury Duty correspondent Brittany Bookbinder's conversation with blogger Tony Ortega about the trial of Danny Masterson. That's all coming up right after the break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And now here's the second part of Brittany Bookbinder's interview with Underground Bunker blogger Tony Ortega. Going all the way back to jury selection and voir dire, did you feel that both sides walked away from that feeling that they landed on a fair and impartial jury? Did you feel at all that the questions that were being asked of potential jurors about Scientology, about their previous interactions with police or previous assaults favored one side over the other? Well, the defense wanted much more questioning of the potential jurors about Scientology. And Judge Omedo limited it. And so I'm not sure that they were entirely happy with the process. But Judge Olmedo talked about how the law has changed and that there's less, I guess there's less opportunity for them to, you know, remove people than there was before. And she just made it clear that she has a very short questionnaire to get some of the big questions out of the way about, you know, do you have a previous criminal history yourself? Have you, you know, that kind of thing. Make sure there's nothing, you know, major and then she just had a very simple question about, you know, what do you know about Scientology and are you familiar with Danny Masterson? And she just trusted these jurors to answer honestly about that. I mean, they're from Los Angeles. Of course, they've heard of Scientology, but they would say, you know, I have a vague understanding of it. I I saw something on TV, but I haven't really watched much. Judge Omedo typically handles things like multiple gang murders and stuff. And she's used to like, you know, are they going to be able to serve on a jury where there's these incredibly heavy subjects being discussed. So I think to her, it felt like this should not be a big deal that these people might've seen a few minutes of a Leah Remini show or something. So that I think the defense didn't like that and they wanted more questioning. But in general, I think, you know, as far as you're asking me if the, if the both sides were happy with it, I don't think Judge Omedo gave them much choice. Going back to Leah Remini one moment, I sort of expected her to show up in court one day. Was she ordered to stay away or do you feel that she just felt that her presence would cause a problem for the the people's case? No, she was not ordered to stay away. As far as I know, we talked about uh, the case the other day and um, they just didn't call her as a witness. I think she would have been prepared to testify that asked her. But I do think that the prosecution was a little wary because of the you know, Tom Mesro's previous theory that this was all cooked up by Leah, which isn't true. The women contacted LAPD before they contacted her. And so I think that the the DA just decided they didn't need to give the defense a chance to sort of like 
bring that theory in or whatever. And so they decided not to to call her. And then moving on to openings, was there anything that surprised you in the way that they presented their cases or was it as you expected? Mueller is had kind of in the opening, it's a different story in the closing, but in the opening, he had kind of an understated style, kind of soft-spoken. And I heard from some journalists that were a little surprised by that and thought, wow, he really wasn't very forceful. But I heard from other journalists that said that it was actually an effective technique because it kind of made them listen carefully to his the facts that he was putting out and that they felt that that was really effective, that he was he was calm, he was understated, but he laid out this web of facts for them to, to focus on. Cohen, completely opposite style. He was, you know, very forthcoming, very kind of, I don't want to say loud. It, it was appropriate, but, you know, he's he's got a swagger and he's fun to listen to. But I felt like his opening was just a very standard talk about presumption of innocence and proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, which he needs to do as a defense attorney. But he didn't, it was more sort of a standard speech than one specifically about the case. Um, But in general, I mean, I thought they both set the table pretty well. Now, closings was different. D.A. Mueller was so much stronger in his approach, he was forceful. He 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 talked about. He said this that that, that guy sitting over there, he comes to court well groomed and well dressed, but these women have a different image of him. That if you're intoxicated and you're in his house, you're going to be raped. And I mean, he's just and he called him that rapist. And at one point, he actually looked at him and called him that. So Mueller was just a different guy in closing. And then. Um, Cohen, again, used a large percent of his time to uh, refer to sort of boilerplate things about, you know, presumption of innocence and beyond a reasonable doubt that I would expect him to say to any jury in any criminal case. And then he was he was very effective when he was talking specifically about the Jane Doe's and her testimony. But I felt that every time he referred to like the expert, it kind of spoiled the spell because he just he was mischaracterizing what the expert had said. And it just felt kind of obvious. And I didn't know. I understand why he was doing that because when he was talking about the Jane Doe's, he brought up good points. But he was talking about the, uh, the expert. It was like he was being a you know the way defense attorneys can be sometimes really twist people's words. So that was a kind of a mixed. Uh, I thought I, I kind of gave it a mixed grade. Here, Tony referred to the expert testimony of Dr. Mindy Mechanic, a clinical and forensic psychologist who specializes in the behavior of trauma survivors. I then asked him about Dr. Mechanic's testimony. Mindy Mechanic offered some interesting testimony about the fact that there's women have a very different response when your attacker is somebody you know, and especially if you're in a relationship with them. You're going to have a different response than if you would have as a stranger. And she laid out some things that lined up with what these women had done. When Karen Goldstein got up to cross-examine her, she didn't question Mindy Mechanic's specific theories she tried to question the basis of psychological research in general. I don't know. It just felt bizarre. I mean, she was trying, she was questioning the whole field. I just thought it was really ineffective. I thought it was interesting that then in the closing argument, primarily what he was referencing back to was her tepid agreement that, yes, sometimes people lie and they could lie for money. Sure. Exactly. So that kind of ridiculous cross-examination produces some sort of misleading answers that they then use heavily in the closing. And I just I just thought that was not good. But other parts of his closing were very good. 
And then moving on to the Jane Doe's, we hinted at this just a little bit, but particularly since you were there for the preliminaries, you you heard them testify before, and then you heard them in this trial, the inconsistencies or the, the variations in detail over time, did you feel that those were in line with what Dr. Mechanic said, that these are peripheral details that one can expect to change over time and would not raise any red flags? Or were there elements that you did find problematic? And and did you feel differently about any one of the Jane Doe's compared to the others? I thought that they actually did better in the trial than they had in the preliminary hearing. And I wonder if that actually helped prepare them a bit because uh, Mesro kind of got them more flustered than Cohen did. And as far as differences, it can be difficult because I know they want to explain them, but he doesn't allow them to explain. You know, some of it has to do with the fact, for example, one of the early reports that Jane Doe One did was for the Church of Scientology. And there were things she held back. There were things that the guy she was reporting to rewrote in her report. And yet, you know, Cohen relied on that heavily in the closing. Why would she say this in 2003 when she's saying something else in 2022? You know, the first report was produced when she's at Scientology when they wanted her to lie about the fact that it was a rape at all. So some of the things I felt that D.A. Mueller did a pretty good job on redirect explaining why there were some of these differences. I mean, some of it, it was explained by Dr. Mechanic that they remembered one detail one time and another detail another time. One of the things that is a real big part of this case Jane Doe 3 and Jane Doe 1 both went to Scientology, which told them, you were not raped. It's not a rape. We don't call it rape. And so later, years later, they're like, wait a minute, that was a rape. And then they get criticized for that. I've seen people online saying, oh yeah, 16 years later, somebody suddenly realizes they're raped. Well, that's not how it went. It was like they had been indoctrinated to believe that they caused their own victimization. That is bedrock Scientology. And like Jane Doe 2 explained, she didn't want to think that this guy, Danny Masterson, had raped her. It would ruin her life to think of it that way. So I felt that the, the expert did a very good job explaining why women would go through these sort of processing of this situation and think of something different later than they did at the time. But of course, Cohen really ridiculed them for that. And that became a big part of the defense. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. In the next part of our conversation, I asked Tony about the moment in the trial when the prosecution called Sean Fabos, a witness who quickly became hostile. Sean Fabos is such an interesting situation. So what happened was Jane Doe 1 went to Florida after the attack. She came back to California, and they were very close at that time. He was a good friend of hers. He worked for her mother. He was the first person, she had told Rachel some things, but he was the first person she really told that it was Danny Masterson, it was in his house, he threw me in the jacuzzi, all the details. And she said that Fabos at that point told her, I'm going to kill the motherfucker. And so she calmed him down. That happened in 2003. Okay, so 2017, they start the investigation again. And like I said, the LAPD had asked these women to make pretext calls. They asked her to do this. 
So she called up Sean Fabos, who she hadn't talked to in years. They weren't really friends anymore. She was out of Scientology now. He was still in. And she said, hey, Sean, do you remember that conversation we had? And without realizing he was being recorded, Sean said, oh, yeah, I remember we got together. Well, can you tell me what you remember that I told you? And so Sean Fabos then says, yeah, you said you went to Danny's house. He threw in jacuzzi, all these little details, right? That's recorded. Now, what they need in this case is evidence like that. So I thought D.A. Mueller took the risk of calling the Scientologist to the stand simply because they had him on tape. And all they wanted him to do, and you saw it, stick to the transcript. Didn't you say this? Uh, no. Can you check the transcript, please? Oh, yeah, I guess I said that. He was really reluctant, and he was stuck. They just had, but then they came up this bizarre thing that the day before in the hallway, a defense investigator had come up to him and asked him, weren't you on that trip? And the weird thing is, Brittany, he said on the stand, he kind of played a game where you never asked me before, you never asked me. But then he actually said it. He had never remembered being on that trip before from 2003 to 2022 until this defense investigator working for Danny had asked him. And you could tell D.A. Mueller was so angry about this. But I think that it was good that the very next witness was this cousin, Rachel, who was there. And I love the tone of her voice. She said, he wasn't on that trip. And it was just very authentic. Because think about it logically. How would Jane Doe 1, you know, go to him in L.A. to tell him what happened when he had been on the trip with them the whole time. I mean, it just makes no sense. And look, D.A. Mueller called a Scientologist and look what he got for it. A really bizarre situation. Fast forwarding to the end, you've been in court all week as the jury deliberates. And at this point, as of this recording, they've deliberated for two and a half days, have not been able to reach a verdict. They're coming back the Monday after Thanksgiving. Do you have a sense of what's going on back there? No, we really don't. I mean, at this point, the judge will not tell us what the split is. Is it 6-6? Is it 11-1 for conviction? Is it 11-1 for acquittal? We have no idea. We just know that those, I think the surprising thing for everybody was that they have been unable to get verdicts on all three counts. And so, you know, again, it's only been two and a half days. It's not unusual for a five-week trial for deliberations to take longer than that. The unusual thing is there's this week-long holiday in the middle of it. And and uh, I don't know if that's going to affect it one way or the other. They'll come back on the 28th. And then if they still can't uh, come up with something, I, I think on that first afternoon, Deputy DA Ariel Anson told us that the attorneys for both sides will then be able to ask them some questions to see if there's something they can clear up and then give them another chance. And then after that, we're looking at a possible hung jury and a mistrial. So that, Brittany, can you imagine us having to do this all over again, like next spring or something? Can you imagine the alleged victims having to come in and testify again? Oh my, exactly. And just to be clear, that would be the DA's decision. The DA would have to decide whether to refile again, and we don't know if they would. And especially given the fact that the criminal trial is still so up in the air, can you talk a little bit about the state of the pending civil suit Sure. So in 2019, before criminal charges were filed, the three Jane Doe's plus Jane Doe three's husband and a fourth woman, Bobette Rialis, filed a civil lawsuit against Danny Masterson and the Church of Scientology over what they claim is the harassment they've gone through since the women came forward to the LAPD in 2016. The lawsuit 
is about the harassment. It's not about the rape allegations. And of course, Scientology denies that they've done any harassment. Danny Masterson does as well. That case is on hold right now. Um, while the criminal case is going on, the, their, their next hearing is December 13th. Scientology is, and, and it, it has a complex history because Scientology convinced one judge that the women didn't have the right to sue because they'd signed contracts while they were in Scientology. But an appeals court overturned that, saying that since the harm that's being alleged, this harassment of them, happened after they left the church, those contracts shouldn't apply. So it's back in court, but Scientology has said that once it gets going again, the next thing they're going to do is file an anti-slap. So that'll probably hold up the case for another year. We've heard a little bit in the criminal case about the allegations of harassment and intimidation, but the jury has not heard any details of what that involves. Now, some of that was made public in the civil suit that's been filed, allegations of the killing of dogs, tapping into computers, stealing passwords. Are you aware of any other allegations of harassment since the trial started? Just in the last six weeks. I don't know their, I mean, obviously the trial's going on, so I, you know, I don't know what they're going through right now. I know that when Jane Doe 3 testified and she was asked how long has the up to what point has the harassment been going? She said today. So something, she's saying that something had happened that day with them being followed or something. And, you know, there's some interesting evidence that did not get into this trial about the kind of harassment they've been through. Probably the most surprising, of course, is that Lisa Marie Presley, we found out, was willing to testify in this case that back in 2003, 2004, Jane Doe 1, who was a close friend of hers, was thinking of going to the LAPD. And Lisa Marie Presley was prepared to testify that Scientology had asked her to dissuade Jane Doe 1 from going to the police. That's huge. And if she can um, testify to that in the civil case, it will go a long way to bolstering the idea that Scientology is willing to tamper with actual criminal investigations. Now that's 2003, 2004. The period in the civil trial is really 2016 and forward. But, you know, that would be interesting evidence. And I hope they get to use that in civil trial. It'd be very interesting. Absolutely. And for you, Tony, as somebody who's covered Scientology for such a long time, have you ever felt that you're putting yourself at risk? Have you experienced any of that? Well, they try to make things hard on me. I mean, they've run various operations against me. I talked about that on the HBO movie Going Clear, and I talked about it with Leah Remini on her show. At one point, they hired an out-of-work New York Daily News reporter to pretend he was working on an investigation of my wife. You know, Scientology never answers my questions. I call them, I email them. They never respond to me. Instead, they run operations to try to ruin my wife's career. They have twice showed up at my mother's house here in California uh, with with private investigators trying to do to intimidate her. So yeah, they they do these classic sort of things. They do it to Leah Remini. They do it to Mike Rinder. Ron Miscavige Sr. really got it heavy uh, before he died last year. They, that's just what they do. And you have to understand, Scientology is all based on the writings of L. Ron Hubbard. And he spelled out these techniques in the 60s about attacking reporters, attacking enemies, suing people. And he died and they don't feel like they can change those policies. So they keep doing them over and over again. I'm so sorry to hear that you've experienced all that, but I do want to thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Thank you, Brittany. Um, Please sign up for free emails at tonyortega.substack.com. 
You will get all my reports the second they come out. They will come to your inbox. During the trial, I was putting out like four or five reports a day. It's obviously going to slow down now and get, until we get back into the courtroom. But uh, yeah, check it out. And um, on Twitter, I'm Tony Ortega94. Well, thank you again, Tony. I really appreciate you being here. And good luck after the 28th. We're all hoping to get some more information then. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brittany. Thanks for that terrific report, Brittany. I've been following Tony Ortega's coverage of this trial since the initial Masterson indictment. And even though he comes at it with a particular point of view, namely from a perspective that is fundamentally critical of the Church of Scientology, I've been struck by his vigilant commitment to journalistic principles and evidence-based presentation of the facts. I wonder, how do the other members of the press pool from the more traditional news outlets regard Tony? I would say that everybody regards Tony with a lot of respect. I think unlike the Weinstein trial, there have been fewer reporters from traditional news outlets coming consistently to this trial. I mean, there certainly are a few, but for the most part, Tony is the person who's been there consistently. He's seen it every single day where other reporters have kind of been in and out. So if anybody has questions about what the atmosphere was like, what actually happened, Tony really is the source. And also he has been involved in the case in a way, as he mentioned in the interview, he was subpoenaed at one point and that subpoena was ultimately dropped, but his reporting has really come into play in this trial in a big way. So I think everybody knows that and he knows everybody in the hallway. So if anybody needs somebody to identify somebody, he's really that person to do that. And I wonder, have you had any interactions with any of the participants in the trial in the hallways of the courtroom or outside the courthouse? So- Yes. I've had interactions with other journalists in the hall. There's a lot of speculation and people talking about the witnesses that are coming up. And, you know, especially when we thought Lisa Marie Presley might testify, there was a lot of anticipation around that. I've also interacted a little bit with the attorneys in this case. We've asked them questions. I've asked Deputy DA Ariel Anson a question about how they were classifying certain witnesses. And other journalists have, of course, asked questions relating to what will be the outcome depending on the verdict as far as it relates to sentencing. I've also had a number of interactions with people in the Masterson family and friends, I suppose, of Danny Masterson's who have come to observe the trial. I've ridden in the elevator with the entire Masterson family several times by accident. And Danny Masterson's wife, Bijou, has greeted me both in the bathroom and in the hall. And it's been a very unique experience. Wow. And have those interactions been pleasant? Oh, yes. Everybody has been very pleasant. The atmosphere in the courtroom isn't very heavy, but there's certainly a certain level of gravitas in the courtroom that is much more relaxed once you get out into the hall. And one last question. We've had the Thanksgiving weekend go by, and we are recording this on Monday night, November 28th. Where do the jury deliberations stand as of this evening? So the jury never reached a verdict, but Judge Olmedo declined to call it a hung jury. She she was going to send them back in to continue deliberations in the hopes that they could reach a unanimous verdict. However, this morning when the jury returned, two of the jurors had tested positive for COVID and were symptomatic. So she decided over the objective of the defense to dismiss those jurors and seat two alternates in their place. So the jury is now starting over, and we'll see if a verdict can be reached. Well, Brittany, thanks again for this terrific reporting and for bringing Tony to our listeners. It's been a fascinating set of interviews that you've done here, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Carrie. And with that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson. 
Join us on our next installment as we await a verdict on the Masterson trial and as we hear from Molly Miller and New York Times correspondent Lauren Herstick about the case presented by the defense in the Los Angeles sexual assault trial of Harvey Weinstein. You can find Tony Ortega's writing and sign up for his email list at tonyortega.substack.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at at TonyOrtega94. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You can find more information about these trials on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. This episode was reported and written by Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson.